Hello, my name's Tom Price, and you are listening to and watching the Sirens of Audio. We've been hearing some reports here at Audio Sirens Central that certain listeners in Iran have been finding it very difficult to listen to us and have been having to take some very clandestine measures to hear us, let alone watch us. But it is thoroughly reassuring to know that we are being heard and seen in the far most reaches of Mesopotamia. If you are thinking it's too difficult to subscribe to us on YouTube or to leave us a review on your favourite podcast app, well, we can only say to you that that is a load of stanky old bollocks. So get to it. Now, on with the show. <laughs> G'day audiophiles, you're listening to the Sirens of Audio, you're watching us too if you're watching via YouTube. Uh, this is the podcast that explores the universe of Doctor Who in the audio medium. My name's Dwayne. And my name's Philip. G'day Dwayne, g'day audiophiles. Philip, how's it going? It is going great. I had an early arrival in my post this week. Really? What did you get? I got the season 17 Blu-ray. Oh, how I, exciting. I don't think it, it was officially released until today, the day of recording, so I got it a couple of days ago. You scored. And on the subject of audio, I absolutely adore what they have done with Destiny of the Daleks because they've merged the soundtrack, Dudley Simpson's... Simpson? Dudley Simpson's music, incidental music, they merged it with Tristram Carey's music from the original Dalek story in 1963-64. So that sounds really cool the way they've done it. It's not over the top, it just occasionally comes out in little stings. Uh, and it's just, I love it. Absolutely love it. You're wow. missing out. You're missing out, Philip. I know. Maybe I should buy myself a Blu-ray player. <laughs> uh, but the, the, the subject of our discussion today will be an interview with Nigel Fair. So he's very heavily involved in composition as well and music so uh, it's going to be exciting to have a little chat with him uh, later on in the episode uh, about that but first of all Philip do you know what no what's coming I see a rabbit hole here we go me, me. <laughs> Philip Dwayne Philip with Dwayne. Nigel Nigel has done quite a lot of stuff with Big Finish in the past that I go back to that is not actually available anymore. So uh, talking to Nigel today has got me thinking about The Tomorrow People, got me thinking about Sapphire and Steel. And these are some ranges that I regularly go back to. But I'm curious to know, Philip, if there is any ranges or stories or sets of stories that you go back to in the Big Finish catalogue uh, just because you love it. Well, you already know the answer to that. The Companion Chronicles are probably my um, one of them. So I, I love going back to the Companion Chronicles and 
list, you know, listening to through to different people. Um, and I've actually listened to a couple this week in preparation for tonight. And probably the other range I still love going to back to the early days. Well, actually, it's two others. I still love going back to early Benny because I, I love the Benny stuff and the, particularly the early things while it's all still still in the Braxis collection. And I love to, to spend time with Gallifrey. Those first three seasons in particular, I you know, they're, they're my nostalgia retreats that I go back to. So, yeah, they're, they're my little go-tos. Any particular, what's your favourite story in the Companion Chronicles, would you say? Or does it change from uh, day it, to day? <laughs> yeah, you know what, it probably does change. Um, I mean, one of the ones I love when I look at this week is The Child, which is Louise Jemison, which is written by Nigel Fairs. Um, I love all the Simon Guerrier stuff. So a lot of the stuff he did for uh, Peter Purvis. There's a trilogy of stories he did with a, with a new companion as well. And those three, I think, are particularly fantastic. We've, we've talked about before. Um, yeah, you know what? I just like to dive in anywhere and have a listen. As far as I'm concerned, um, I... I struggle a little bit uh, to go back these days because there is so much new stuff to keep up with. I find it very, very difficult to to uh, to get the time to go back. And it's usually when we do a review of something random that we've picked or something like that, that I get the opportunity to go back. So that's why I love doing our random episodes because I can go back and listen to something that I haven't heard in many, many years. But there is a, a, a series... In Big Finish that you may be surprised that I really enjoy going back to because I've said I'm not really a fan of these uh, monsters and that's Dalek Empire. Oh, uh, yeah. I really enjoy going back and re-listening, particularly series one and two. Yep. They're the two standouts for me in that series. Uh, I can't even remember if I've completely listened through series four, but I certainly have heard it probably once, but I never go back to it. I always go back to series one and two. Yeah. Uh, I think with... Gareth Thomas has a has a fantastic role in that in that series, and yeah, it was it was Nicholas Briggs, little it was his baby in the early years of Big Finish, and uh, it it convinced me that I think the Daleks in many ways work a lot better as a threat when the Doctor's not around. Uh, well, so, so, so the Doctor has to win. Mm. That, that's that's part of I, I think part of the reason why I love Blake Seven so much is you never know who will win. Because you know that they regularly lose. And so it's the story, you're never quite sure how it's going to end. And I think the Dalek Empire worked exactly the same way um, because you just don't know who's going to win. Where when the Doctor's around, the Doctor has to win, which sort of changes the whole dynamic. Yeah, it, it, that, that Dalek Empire is interesting. You know, you said Gareth Thomas, you know, Kallendorf and Susan Mendes. And yep. like those names are embedded in my mind, even though it's a series that isn't, yeah, not Doctor Who, it's, it's a spin off with Dalek series. And yet, those characters are so strong in my head, um, because they're so well drawn. Yeah, I think I think Dalek Empire, and I said one and two is a, is a masterpiece, um, and and season three has to change because you have to keep changing up what you're doing. You can't keep reproducing the same things over and over. But yeah, where one and two were were just beautiful spots in um, storytelling and characterization. What was going on here? Yeah, yeah. Actually, and you know what? I, I need to listen to it again. <laughs> if you haven't heard. Uh... Dalek Empire, Series 1 and 2 are virtually the same story continuing on for those eight episodes. Series 3 is a different setting way in the future uh, with one or, two, one or two characters from the original, but not major characters. 
And yes, David Tennant's in it as well. Uh, William Gaunt was a big draw card for me because I love Orsini from Revelation of the Daleks. Yep. His voice is just made for audio. And Series 4 with Maureen O'Brien and Noel Clarke. So right. a different a different section of the Dalek Empire universe. So, um, yeah, if you, if you haven't heard the first two series, definitely go back and have a listen. I, I Correct me if I'm wrong, but it may be one of the ones that's available on Spotify. It could be. And if it yeah. is... You go and have a listen, but it's extremely cheap to buy anyway now. So as I say, it's not, not expensive, really worth getting. Yeah, absolutely. All right, let's get out of this rabbit hole. Uh, what should we have a listen to as a as a lead in for our chat with uh, Nigel Fairs, Philip? Well, that's a good question. Why, why don't we choose one of the Companion Chronicles? Actually, pick the one I've just chosen, the, the Child. Okay, we'll have a listen to that, and we'll be back with Nigel Fairs in just a moment. Coming soon from Big Finish Productions, Doctor Who, the Companion Chronicles. The child. I am reborn. The circle of life begins again. As a newborn child, I have all the wisdom of an old soul. And I have so many stories left to tell. And as she stepped out into the snow, the warrior girl cried out. Not because she was frightened. The warrior girl was never frightened of anything. She cried out because she'd never seen snow before. Ah, is this it, Doctor? Is this the map of life? I'm confused. I get all the stories muddled up. The Severteen talk of a place between one life and the next where the dead walk lost and without purpose. It's your fault. You tell them in the wrong order. What are they? Spiders! Stories should have a beginning, a middle, and an end. That's what Papa says. Can you hear me, glass woman? Together we shall vanquish all your guards. Release the doctor to us now, and we shall spare you. If you do not, then we shall kill you as we killed your creatures. What is that noise? Doctor. Stop it. Whose voice is that? What does she mean? Shush. I'm not sure I want to tell this story anymore. She's handy with a knife, that one. Subscribers get more at bigfinish.com. So, Nigel Fares has done it all. Actor, director, writer, composer, sound designer. Today we look forward to discussing some of his huge body of work, but where to begin? So, firstly, welcome, Nigel. Hello. It's uh, great to have you. Thank you for joining us. Pleasure. So, want to tell us a bit of... Actually, tell us where you are in the world. Uh, well, um... Uh, I'm currently in um, Penzance in uh, England. Um, Penzance is right at the bottom on the uh, west side next to Land's End. Uh, so, uh, yeah, I'm about as far away from anywhere else that you can get to in England, which suits me down to the ground. I've become a sort of hermit. I live in I live in the attic space of a, a really old house, um, which has been rattling around during the recent storms and everything. But I just, it just suits me down to the ground, <laughs> and I spend most of, I spend most of my days walking along the cliffs and just looking at the sea and doing the odd bit of work, but not much. <laughs> it's a beautiful part of the world. Mm, really is, yeah. Now, we, we want to talk about um, a huge part of your career, and you've done so much different stuff for different people. Um, firstly, just in terms of being, just a bit about you growing up and in terms of how you decided to become an actor, because I think, firstly, 
You call yourself an actor? Yeah. Yeah, I'm an actor who does other stuff, really, basically. I started all the writing and business like that so I could get myself, give myself work between jobs. That was the whole idea. Yeah. And I've sort of done that for years and years and years now. <laughs> so at what point yeah. did you know you wanted to be an actor? Uh, when I was about five, I think, something like that, um, my, my grandmother um, encouraged me to do little plays in her uh, lounge, which had a sort of curtain thing halfway across. So we actually pulled the curtains across and me and my teddy appeared in them. Um, I think my first play was called The Green Ghost. And I've got an audio recording of it, actually, me, little five-year-old, saying, the green ghost. So that was my first experience. But then I went on to it, and I, had, I was lucky enough to have a series of um, teachers who really encouraged that side of my personality. So, yeah, thanks to them. Where were you growing up then? Where were you living? Uh, in in um, the south of England, um, near Brighton. Uh, there's a little village which is uh, just across the downs from the Brighton uh, called Hassocks, and uh, I spent most of my childhood there. Yeah. So were you joining theatrical groups at that age or doing stuff for school? How were you starting your craft? Eventually, um, in my early teens, I joined a uh, youth theatre group that met every Saturday in the local theatre and run by a ferocious but brilliant woman called Renee, um, who's just died very recently, very old and just brilliant. You know, she had a brilliant life. Um, and, uh, yeah, she would actually treat us as if we were all at drama school um, and give us really... It wasn't a babysitting service as drama workshops so often are. You know, the parents getting the kids off to... Uh, uh, to you know to pl run around and play games oh no we did really important stuff as far as acting goes in intercostal diaphragmatic breathing and on how to project and and uh how to dance although i could never do that and um singing and all sorts of stuff we were we were teenagers but we were treated like professionals so she was brilliant i owe a lot to her yeah and after you left school you went on to study drama yeah yeah, I went to a college, uh, same college. Do you know Mark Gatiss? Yes. Uh, oh, well, of course you do. The Doctor Who Connection. Of course you know Mark Gatiss. Um, well, he, he, we went to the same college, although I went just a little bit before him, Bretton Hall, uh, which is in Yorkshire. And that's where he met the League of Gentlemen, or they, where they all got together. Um, so, yes, we, we, whenever we meet, we have a, a little sort of chat about... <laughs> the college and its downfalls, but also what, what it was, it was in the middle of nowhere, in the middle of Yorkshire, um, had a couple of beautiful lakes. It was in a mansion house. I lived in the mansion house, which was just amazing. Um, uh, but because we were so isolated, we had all these things to play with. So between lessons, we would just be putting our own plays on and um, writing stuff and performing stuff and everything on our own. So I think that's what created the League of Gentlemen. Um, and that's also what led to my creative life, the fact that I have to keep on writing and producing and stuff between <laughs> other jobs. <laughs> yeah, they, they had quite a big stage career. Um, I was just looking through through some of the things you've done. Um, you've been on the West End in the Mousetrap in terms of works that lots of people would know. Um, but you've also played a lot of great classics and some major roles in the different classics. 
So is stage part of your passion? Yes. Oh, yes. Yeah, it's always the one that uh, most actors say, yeah, I, I, I need to get a fix of theatre work. Um, although these days, I remember actually talking about The Mousetrap. I was in The Mousetrap with Nick Courtney, who played the Brig Deer, of course. Yeah, right. Uh, and I remember during <laughs> rehearsal, he'd done it, I think, twice before, maybe. Um, and during rehearsals, uh, he kept saying, um, um, David, um, I, I'm pretty sure that I sat down at this point. And he would sit down. He would come in and sit down. And I thought, that's a bit strange. Why, why does he keep sitting down the whole time? And then, of course, a year in the, in the play, and all you want to do is just, <laughs> you want to sit down as often as you can, especially when you get on a bit. And now I'm doing a similar sort of thing when I'm, whenever I'm in a play or whatever, I look at where I could possibly sit down. <laughs> I think my off. character would sit at this point. This is exactly yeah. it. This is exactly my it. My character would lean there. <laughs> I could. Yes, and I've got to the stage and I never thought, little young sort of eager me, I never thought I'd get to the stage and look through the script and think, oh, good, I'm not in act two. That's fabulous. I could, you know, you could, I think because uh, my bestie, Louise Jameson, she was in The Mousetrap quite recently. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I think she only did it because uh, I said, you know that you don't survive to the second act. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not giving the plot away. But um, uh, so I think that's why she did it. She thought, oh, plenty of time in the dressing room. That's lovely. Sylvester McCoy toured Australia and toured lots of places with doing King Lear. But part of the reason why he accepted the part was he was playing the clown and he was only in the first act. And so oh, yeah, yes. he, he got to, got to go, go off after intermission and go and have a drink and you know, enjoy the rest of the yeah. night. And he wasn't doubling up as Camellia. Um, as, um, Camellia, what's her name? Cordelia. No. Uh, he just, as he just, often happens. No, just playing, just playing the clown. <laughs> Um, now, <laughs> alongside your growing acting career, you, you also have a bit of a history for Doctor Who. Um, so when did you first become interested in Doctor Who? Um, I think, let me see, when was it? Oh, uh, it must have been around about the time of um, The Three Doctors, which would have been 73 or 72, something like that. Yeah. Um, and I'd I'd been I was a big Thunderbirds freak when I was growing up. I just loved Thunderbirds, um, and I and I bought this Thunderbirds um, sort of. It wasn't an annual; it was some sort of reprint of comic strips or something like that. And in the middle, they had um, a photograph thing of. Um, Doctor Who, which I'd sort of, everyone, in, in this we're talking about the 60s and 70s when everyone watched it anyway, um, because it was a communal event, you know, it was, it was just part of, it was, it was just, it wasn't a cult thing or anything, everyone watched it on Saturday nights. Um, and I, so I was aware of it, and I thought, but no, but that's not Doctor Who. Um, it, it was Pat Troughton, it wasn't, you know, the Doctor, as I thought. And then, as soon as I'd seen that, I think it was a couple of weeks later, they had the Radio Times, which had three of them on. And I thought, oh, I, what? <laughs> There's been another one, another two. And I, and it really piqued my interest. So, yeah, that was when I started watching it, really. 
Um, although, of course, as I say, everyone had watched it anyway, and, and I remember the dummies coming out the window and all that sort of business. So um, I just hadn't really sort of clicked that there were more than one. It was it was about ten years later that um, that audio visuals started. Were you involved with with them right from the beginning? Um, I don't think so. No, I think I approached them uh, as an actor because I was an actor by then, um, and I think I approached them asking whether I could uh, uh, do them because um, I'd heard a couple of the cassettes. And I thought, actually, these are produced really well. Uh, I'd, I'd quite like to have a go at this. And, and, and they got me in as the villain with Michael Wisher, who was the first Davros, the, the Davros. Um, and uh, so that was absolutely thrilling. And I really enjoyed the day and I really got on with them, uh, Nick Briggs and everyone who was playing the Doctor. And uh, then at the end of that day, they said, well, we're going to have you in as the new companion. So I was in loads of them for about, Four or five years, I think, something like that. Yeah. <laughs> were, were they paid jobs, or was it all just? No, no, to... no, no. They were all. Um... Forgive me if I'm wrong, but I think they were part of the BBC Club or something. We certainly recorded them at Broadcasting House at, uh, you know, at the BBC. Um, so I think it was it was part of some in in a BBC thing that wasn't paid or licensed or anything like that. Uh, but no, we, you know, we were all professional actors. It was just, it was just a jolly. <laughs> Did you learn a lot about um, on the pr production side of things while you were doing that job as well? Yeah. Yeah. It was a, it was a real learning curve. Yeah. Um, I'd always produced uh, sound plays um since i was at school that was i think possibly because it, i didn't have access to a film camera or anything like that but i did have reel-to-reel -reel tape recorders and cassettes and everything so i'd always bullied people right the way through into doing plays on on tape so i i had a background of it already but to actually go into the into the bbc studios and record with the foley you know with the um uh, opening doors and crunching footsteps and all that sort of business was was great fun um uh and uh yeah and and i think i uh did some sound design on some of those as well probably the ones i wrote i would have think i, I probably said well i want to do these <laughs> but you know it's all voluntary so it wasn't paid so they would have just said oh yes you do it whatever <laughs> So yeah. was that your first writing or were you writing earlier than that? No, no, I wrote um I wrote a couple of things in while I was at drama school and then joined a theatre company or for, helped form a theatre company when I left. We lived in a caravan in a disused quarry in Lancashire, which is a very cold um county, um and wrote and produced plays for, um there so uh yeah that was quite grim <laughs> i was listening to a conversation with an acid bath murderer today and i mm. noted in the extras of that that you actually started writing and and uh, organizing performances of some of that script in the late 80s so it's been around for a long time that idea how did how did that idea come about because it's a great play to to listen to on audio and it would have been great to see as well 
Oh, bless you. Yeah, that was a that was a sort of passion pro- project from quite early on. Um, when I was teaching drama in uh, a theatre in Sussex, um, one of the students uh, came up to me um, with a book about John Haig, the acid bath murderer, and said, I think this would make a really good play. And I looked at her a little weird, thinking, I don't want to write about a murderer. But as soon as I started reading it, I um, I was intrigued because all the places that he lived in or took his victims from or murdered them in, I knew. I knew all these places. It was really strange. So then I got interested in his story and his background. He was brought up as one of the Plymouth Brethren, which is a sort of cult religious cult, and it did him quite some damage as a child um, and led him into this delusional state and everything. So, uh, yeah, I I wrote uh, a short play based on that and did it with the teenagers uh, at this theatre class. (laughs) Hugely inappropriate, probably, but uh, they absolutely loved it because, you know, teenagers love dark stuff and... Anyway, they they had a joyous time playing bits of body and <laughs> murder victims and everything. And it wasn't until about 10 years later that I was approached by a theatre company saying, we, we want something that's relevant to Sussex. And I thought, oh, I could um, turn that into a, into a play rather than into a sort of workshop piece. Um, and wrote it, and Keith Drinkle, who the Doctor Who connection with Keith is that he was in Time Flight. Um, whenever I see him, I always joke that it's been voted the worst Doctor Who <laughs> of all time. You know, I'm, I'm aware that it hasn't, but uh, it's up, it's up there. <laughs> yes, exactly, or down there. <laughs> or down there. Um, <laughs> but anyway, he played he played John Hague in the in the first theatrical version of it and was utterly brilliant. But then when it came to relaunching it 10 years after that, um, as a two-hander, he was by then too old to play Haig and I was just about young enough. So I played him for a bit and then came the audio version. So yes, it's had quite a life actually, that story, that chilling story. Coming soon from Big Finish Productions, Drama Showcase. In conversation with an acid bath murderer. Evening, Mr. Hay. That was quick. I must say I'm extremely grateful. Plastic fingernails, Mr. Haig. They're all the rage, you know. All I'm saying, Archie, is that I don't trust him. Don't trust John. Never had such nonsense in life. And if it's a question of money, I do have a little tucked away. <laughs> For a rainy day. I love you. I loved you from the moment I first saw you. Really, Rose? Arnold said when you meet a man like that, you should run for the hills. Man is but a pawn in the hands of a supreme being, bound hand and foot to destiny, preordained and inevitable. If you could just pick up Archie's things for me, Rose. They're over there on the workbench. I just have to see to one thing. The writing on the wall cannot be erased, cannot be altered. If Killer has been written against my name, then I am powerless to change it. You don't really want to hear any of that, do you? Admit it.
the one thing you do want to know, the one thing that horrifies and fascinates each and every one of you, is how exactly did he do it? How did he kill them? Acrid fumes smother the air. The hiss as the acid sears the flesh, dissolving the skin. Stripping the bones. How does it feel to kill an old woman in cold blood? All right. I'll tell you. Subscribers get more at bigfinish.com. I did also note that you said you you don't see things in black and white. So you're interested in looking these stories or looking at these stories um, and trying to get an understanding of where they're coming from. I guess being a, being a, should I call myself a fan of, of true crime? Um, but being fascinated by true crime myself, it's like that desire to get into someone's head and try and work out why they would do something so horrendous. Yeah. Um, my, my question to you would be, how do you, how do you cope with that way of thinking these days when you look at some things like social media where there are no, there is no room for nuance. <laughs> Everything is black and white. Uh, it makes it a little bit difficult if you if you try and understand someone. Do you get judged for, for for liking someone so evil? Is how do you cope with that these days? I think I think we're in very troublesome times. I think that's why we're in such trouble <laughs> worldwide at the moment. It's because of this. Everything being black and white. You're either this or you're you're that i mean you had it with trump um as the most extreme example uh, and we've got it with johnson in a way um in that yeah without an understanding of the complexities of the human psyche you you if you just attach yourself to one view uh, of good and evil or whatever you're going to end up there's going to be judgment. There's going to there's going to be war. The, the, you know, it's it's a very dangerous route to go down. But that wasn't the question. <laughs> the question was, what was the question? <laughs> well, it, it's I tend to get a little bit tired of social media and seeing that black and white uh, yeah. in the online space. So at times, I take myself away from it and. And avoid yeah. it. I don't spend too much time in there because it, I just find it very depressing. I wondered if you felt the same way. Yeah. Yeah, I, I've um, distanced myself quite a bit from social media, um, really, unless I'm posting pictures of me on a rock or something. Um, yeah. Uh, as I say, I think it's, it's, it's a dangerous... It's a dangerous game to play because you start believe if you're constantly surrounded by these cert these certainties, this black and white view of the world, you're going to be more and more entrenched in your beliefs. You're, you're not going to be open to understanding why things happen, which is the whole point of being here, isn't it? Certainly, it's the whole point of my profession is to explore what it means to be human and. Um, and, and encourage thought about that and everything, which is what always draws me to uh, villainous roles as an actor. It's because you think if you're going to play that person, you've got to actually understand how they got there. You know, they weren't just born a villain. They they were born innocent and uh, and then 
whatever they came across in life, whatever belief system or whatever, um, gradually led them to the point often of desperation or some damaged point where they will commit a crime or whatever. I worked quite a lot in prisons when I was in my 20s or 30s as an actor working with prisoners, always lifers, actually. Um, so they were all in for quite some horrendous crime um, that we didn't really talk much about. But almost without exception, I would say that that was a moment of crisis in their life that would almost certainly not be repeated. So the fact that they were locked away for that one moment uh, it, it, it didn't seem right to me. So I was quite um, I was quite interested in um, exploring that as a, as a concept. Um, sorry, I do blab on. I talk absolute bo bollocks. <laughs> That's okay. No, I'm fascinated because I've only just I've literally only just finished listening to it again a couple of hours ago. So, oh right, oh it's, god, it's it's fascinating um, the the connections you have apart from the location of this fella. Your you was it your great grandfather who actually shackled yes, him to yes. it. That's it. I'd completely forgotten about that. Um, yeah, my grandfather, my great grandfather, put the shackles on him uh, in prison, um, and my grandfather hired him a car at some point. Neither of which I knew when I was writing any versions of these plays. It, it was just the final time when my mother actually said, "Oh, you did realise that uh, your grandfather." Hired him a car, and, <laughs> and oh, and I'll tell you another creepy thing that happened. Um, about a month or three weeks or whatever before I was due to play Hake, I fell off my bike and uh, I got a sort of scar, which I've still got um, on my face, and I was on my forehead, and I was thinking, oh no, this is a disaster. I've got to play Hake in this tour. Um, how will I? Will it? You know, will I be able to get makeup and stuff? Because it, it at the time it looked awful. And um, then for a radio interview, I had to talk about a specific part of his one of his trials. Um, so I, I went back to the research and and had a look. I think because it was at Lewis Crown Court or something like that. Um, and there was a description of him, and uh, the court description. And it says he has a scar on his right eyebrow and I thought this is spooky <laughs> so as well that's as very all creepy these, <laughs> it's really creepy yeah so that was that was one step too far I think <laughs> so about 23 years ago Big Finish started and you appeared in two of their opening productions uh, acting in two, two of the Benny Summerfields, their first range of stuff to go out. So yeah. how did you get involved with Big Finish? Oh, well, it was the same group of people that had done the audiovisuals uh, years before. So I just knew them. Um, and I think Gary Russell probably got me along to one. The first one I did, I think, for Big Finish, I think Liz Sladen was in it. Um, yes, she was, Walk to Babylon. That's it. That's it. One of the Benny ones. And that would have been the first time I met Lisa, who, of course, I've worked with many times since. And I'm working with this week, in fact. Um, uh, yeah, so that was that was amazing um, to work with 
Liz Sladen, you know, because no matter how big or little a fan you are, you know Sarah. Yeah. <laughs> and so that was a thrill, and there she was. And we were doing the crowd scenes together and being silly, and it was lovely. <laughs> yeah. So you you started a number of different productions along the way, different things, and then you wrote your first uh, story, which I think, if I'm right, was the companion chronicle of the Bluetooth. Was that your first piece of writing for Big Finish, or were you already involved in some of the early stuff? I think it was uh, Tomorrow People, wasn't it, or Sapphire and Steel? Yeah, or yeah, both at I the think same time. Uh, Tomorrow People came first, and I more or less bullied Jason Hay Gallery into letting me write, and then ultimately produce those. Um, we were at a convention in LA in a jacuzzi. And I, I said, you're not getting out of here until I've got, um, I, I can either be in or write or have something to do with the tomorrow people. <laughs> so poor wrinkled Jason eventually gave in to my demands and uh, I ended up writing some of those. And, and in fact, do you know the tomorrow people at all? Very oh, well, very well. Oh, why, did, oh, why oh. did you want that job so badly? Yeah, because it was it was you know the, when I was growing up there were Thunderbirds, Doctor Who, and the Tomorrow People, and those were my three sort of uh, childhood passions, as it were. Um, I, ju- I, I I think looking back now at the original Tomorrow People, I think they're a bit creaky and the scripts are lacking a bit, but the central premise is so strong. And so clever, and and just about teenagers being uh, special, you know, which every teenager wants to believe. Um, I think that it was just wonderful. In fact, the one of the high points of my creative life was when I went to a Tomorrow People convention. I met Roger Price, who wrote and produced all the original TV ones, um, and I just said to him, "Look." Your, your your idea was just wonderful and, and it was such an honour to sort of carry on the story, albeit in just in audio form and everything. And he said to me, yeah, you did it much better than I did. <laughs> so he was, was listening to them Obviously, mm. yeah. I had no idea. Uh, but, you know, just come from the mouth of the the guy who'd uh, come up with the idea. I was just thrilled, beaming from ear to ear for weeks after that. Also available from Big Finish. Becoming a tomorrow person, realising who I was, what I was, felt like growing up. So you still believe that an alien spaceship crash-landed in the middle of the Sahara in 1900? I know it did. The aliens are coming, Paul. In fact, they're already here. Are you suggesting that members of our government are aliens, Mr. Everton? I couldn't possibly comment on that. But the aliens are living amongst us. Amongst us and within us. Within us. I don't want my private business broadcast to all and sundry. I'm your daughter! Yes, well... You're telling me that you willingly gave up your son for some weird experiment. Have you ever stopped to wonder what it's like to have given birth to one of you? Get back! Get away from me! You know I don't... Have you never thought how shocking it might be to see your own daughter disappear in front of your eyes like some sort of freak? A beauty, isn't it? To have her lift things up in the air or or mend broken bones and then claim she's superhuman. To have her 
snatched away by some weirdo who not only believes in all this madness, but actually encourages it? You can't do it. You've been murdering 20,000 people. I could do. No! No! You never lost me. You drove me away. I want. You want to help? No! Me? I'm scared. Don't leave me. The Tomorrow People saying goodbye. I'm not a kid anymore, Eleanor. There's no need to protect me. Whatever it is, I can cope. Life goes on. Does it? The Tomorrow People, the Lords of Forever. The Eternal Order of Guardians maintains the integrity of the timelines. There's been a massive disturbance in the time stream. Get away from the jaunting pad. What's happening? A massive energy influx. And the origin is here. Now, today, something happens today that affects the entire future. No! Something he does in the next 24 hours will destroy everything. Ah, the redoubtable John. I've been waiting for you. This is London, 200 years into your future. London? Welcome to the future, Robert. From here, the Undermind can act together in meta-concert, reaching out across the stars. A million worlds, countless sapient life forms, all can share in the immeasurable glory of Homo Superior. You freaks! Monsters! You don't deserve to share this planet with decent people. For every one of us you kill, a dozen more will break out. A hundred more. The threats of Homo Superior are empty nothings. Tim? Tim, is that you? Tim. Tim. I knew a Tim once. I was a Tim once. Wasn't I? Those creatures are an abomination. How did you get hold of them? They're banned on every civilised world. I have my contacts. What sort of a world is this? Oh, Robert. This is the world you helped create. So there was quite an evolution uh, of, on the Tomorrow People audio series from the way it started. It's it, You could see this definite progression over the seasons getting more and more complex as, as the seasons went on. And uh, I think it's one of the big tragedies of Big Finish, if Big Finish does have a tragedy, is that they no longer um, sell that line uh, or even produce that line. Um, yeah. We know of the, the fabled Series 6 that was never released and... Um, I just, I just wish that that could come out at some point, but don't think that's going to happen in a hurry. But a similar tragedy that you worked on was, uh, Sapphire and Steel, similar, right. similar thing too. How did you get that no. gig? Uh, I think it was a similar sort of thing to the Tomorrow People, only not in a jacuzzi. I think I was, uh, I was producing the Tomorrow People with Jason. We were co-producing at, at, at that point. Um, and he mentioned Sapphire and Steel. And again, I remembered that with great affection from my childhood and um, said, oh, I'd, I'd just love to have something to do with that. So he just gave me the gig. I mean, it was as easy as that. Um, yeah, yeah, both, but both series, yes, were cut off before I'd finished with them. And both I had story arcs going that were, you know, worked out in quite some detail and... Uh, 
and never got to fruition, which was very frustrating. Um, plus, the old cliche of we were recording these, you know, every month for a few years. So it got to be a little, two little families. Um, and we were all quite close and, and looking forward to our monthly dose of the studio and, and, and getting together and recording and having fun and everything. I really miss them. Every time I work with one of the Tomorrow People or uh, David and Susie, who played Sapphire and Steel, I, we have a jolly old chin wag about the, the good old days and everything. And uh, yeah. They I also introduced get... some of the classic writers for Big Finish. Uh, Joe Litster, I think that was his first script, the Sapphire and Steel yeah, script. Yeah. I think it came out after his Doctor Who was released, but I think he wrote that one first from memory. He wrote that. He, he, he subbed that as a um, Tomorrow People idea. And right. I said to him, this isn't tomorrow, people. This is Sapphire and Steel. So oh. I said, oh, and I happened to just be taking over Sapphire and Steel, or we were, we're starting Sapphire and Steel. So um, how about, you know, reworking it uh, as Sapphire and Steel? Um, yeah, Joe's a brilliant writer. And uh, and John Dorney yeah. actually contributed to that too, one of his yes. early gigs. Yeah, that's right, with uh, the one set on the um, pier. Um yeah. That's right. Remember me. That was called. Remember me. That's it. Yeah, you know better than I do. Uh, and that had Sam Kelly in, um, who was just amazing. Sam Kelly. He's only been in a, a couple of Big Finish productions, and yeah, it was sad that the, that that one's no longer available to everybody unless you bought it at the time. So that's true. That's mm. true. Yeah, he was a great friend of David Warner's, which is how we got. Was him. he? Um, but uh, do, do you know Mike Lee's work at all? Um, have I you heard of him? No. no. Nah. Well, he's he he was a, a great theatre. He still is around. He was, but in the seventies and eighties, he was a great theatre practitioner who worked a lot through improvisation and created really brilliant full human dramas through that. And then he went on to television, and then he went on to film. So he's, he's you know. He's one of the greats. And there was one early TV play that he did called Grown Ups, which for me is still, all these years later, it was 1980 it came out, I think, is still, I think, one of the best pieces of television ever made. It's hilarious. And it has people like Brenda Blethyn, who's a great English actress, um, Leslie Manville, uh, who's also a fabulous English actress, uh, and Sam Kelly in it. So... Um, to me, the greatest thrill of that Sapphire and Steel was meeting a cast member of Grown Ups. Um, and um, I think I stopped just short of saying some of his lines to him because I know every single one of them, <laughs> uh, which I didn't stop short of when I met Leslie Manville at Mark Gatiss's wedding and made a complete fool of myself by saying, <laughs> I know every line of a play you did in 1980. Um <laughs> The sort of thing you just don't want to do when you come across people you admire. But I did, and then I left very soon afterwards, so embarrassed. <laughs> <laughs> just on Sapphire and Steel, how Sapphire and Steel, the television show, is an extremely visual show. Um, and th there's not a lot of dialogue in it at times. There's a lot of looking around and, um, you know, ex examining things and, you know, lots of things to see. How do you translate that? a totally visual TV show 
to an audio drama. That was one of the big problems right at the start. And I made a decision um, that what we needed to do was invest in the guest, um, the guest characters emotional story so that would be the focus always of the story it would be what was going on how they were reacting to whatever was going on with time so you'd you'd have almost i mean because when you're exploring emotions you are exploring something that is very physical um and almost visual because you know if you hear someone crying you are imagining them crying so there is a visual stimulus that comes with an emotional story arc, um, if you get my meaning. So that was very much the focus, yeah. I want to know what the supporting characters are going through, how this strange thing is affecting them, and also how Sapphire and Steel are manipulating their emotional story to cure the time eddy or whatever it is, you know, is going on. So, yeah, that was the focus. And I think... Nine times out of ten, it really worked that way. Coming soon from Big Finish. I felt it in the van. Thought I was imagining it. Maybe I was, but... What did you feel? Premonition. A premonition? Like I'd been here before. Have you been here before? No. It's like I know this place. Even some of the people. It's been happening all day. It's like I know every room, every corridor, and him. I know him. Him? Jackson. I know his face. You met him before? I've never seen him before in my life. He's becoming part of the past here. He's becoming someone else. Who? I don't know. I can't tell. A noose. I can see. Silver, we have to get him back. They're going to hang him. What's wrong? Time. Something's wrong. I didn't do it. I've changed the record. I'm not who you think I am, you know. All right, Hammond, out. It's time. Yes. Time for what? Who's that? A priest. He doesn't deserve a priest. You should rot in hell what he's done. Working with David Warner and Susanna Harker, I mean, these are two of the biggest British stars' names that there are. Um, I assume you got David through Lisa? No, 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 no. I got them together. Seriously? Yeah, that's, that's how is they that met. How they... Lisa, Lisa told us that's how they met on okay. Sapphire and Steel. So yeah. how, how did you manage to get such gigantic names as David Warner and Susanna Harker? 
uh, Jay, that was Jason Haygallery. He's he's great at, at all the contacts and everything, and he'd worked with them both. Um, so when we we approached Joanna Lumley and David McCallum, David McCallum was very close to saying yes, but then he got uh, a, a, an American series or something, so he couldn't do it. Joanna Lumley had moved on from Sapphire and Steel by then, so she wasn't interested. But um, so, yeah, I think we, uh, <laughs> um, Jason said, well, I'm thinking of asking David Warner, and I was thinking, you're kidding. <laughs> you know, once I'd realised who David Warner was, I thought he's not going to do this. And and he and 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 he did. And Susanna Harker is one of the loveliest people on the planet. So the, the pair of them, it was just a joy to work with them. Yeah, they were lovely. Yeah. Now they're no longer for sale because of rights issues that Big Finish lost the rights. If if they lose the rights to a show, does that mean that something they can't sell, even stuff that's been produced in the past? Yeah, yeah, and and I I'm not entirely sure what happened with Sapphire and Steel, why the rights were taken away. I think uh, it I think the series initially got into trouble because there was a lot of illegal downloading going on at the time of Big Finish stuff, and so the numbers, the sales, w- just weren't there, which was really extraordinary because we were getting emails i thought were there emails then i don't think there probably were um we were getting you know post or whatever saying how good it was and yet no one was buying them so it was really strange and then it all came to light that all this illegal downloading was going on so that scuppered the series basically um and then but no the tomorrow people was about rights um because they were going to make a new tv series or whatever yeah. yeah, which came and went very quickly. <laughs> yes, it did. Yeah, yeah. I've still got, I've still got three stories that we recorded uh, but never released. They're, um, in fact, they're, I can see them from here, um, which is so frustrating because you know a lot of work goes into these things, and uh, we even for <laughs> for the first time. Um, in I think it was season six, did you say? It was it, it, the one that w- wasn't released. We had a writer's room, I thought, because before we'd we'd sort of all communicated, and I thought, no, I'm gonna I'm gonna follow the American example and have a writer's room. So everyone came down to Brighton, where I was living at the time, and we all went all the writers for the season, and we all went through the whole complex sort of. Uh, spider's web of stories that would lead to the season finale um and it was so exciting and then a couple of months later it was all gone so there was no warning this was going to happen no 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 warning at all no 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 in fact i found about found out about it um because i wasn't getting a reply about a cd cover i think the third cd cover i just wasn't they weren't no one was responding to my emails and then Jason rang me up because I was sort of saying, well, why isn't anything happening? And he said, are you sitting down? <laughs> and I thought, oh, no, why? What, what's wrong? And he said, we've lost them. We've lost the Tomorrow People. Um, and I thought, oh, God, who's died? But no, it was, yeah, we'd lost the rights. So that was horrible, really horrible. Is there any chance that you could get them back now or, and be able to re- re-release the stuff that's been done in the past? 
I mean, there's been there's been talk of it over the years, but um, and and I would be delighted. I'd love to, you know, I've got all the scripts, and we've got those three that we recorded. Um, I would love it. Although, oddly enough, a lot of the ideas from uh, the three that we recorded um, turned up in Stephen Moffat's Doctor Who. Like uh, we had this whole. Thing underneath Stonehenge, and I mean, loads of loads of ideas. It was just one every year. There'd be a thought. Well, we had that in <laughs> people. I mean, and I'm not saying that Stephen Moffat <laughs> raided the uh, Tomorrow People secret box in my attic, but um, it was uncanny. It really was. It's extraordinary. So everyone, if it if they came out now, they think, well, I pinched that from Stephen Moffat. <laughs> <laughs> Now, you started mm. writing a lot of Companion Chronicles. People who listen to the podcast know I'm a, I'm a huge fan of the Companion Chronicles in particular. Um, oh. So why, why did you move into that range? Why was that sort of for you? I can't remember why. Uh, I think I, it was just one of the things that was offered to me. Um, I can't remember how early on... You'll know better than I do. Oh, was it the, the Bluetooth? The Bluetooth, which was the yeah, first season of the yes. yes, right at the beginning. That's it. Yep. Yes. And and was that the same one as Lou's first one? No. Louise. No, your first oh. one with Louise was the Catalyst. The Catalyst. Yeah. Yeah. I thought it was a really good idea. Um to get inside the companions' heads and just find out with a little bit more intimacy what was going on with their character um on which i i did i mean typical okay actually there's another one i i sorted out this um nine story thing for leela <laughs> and yeah. only got as far as the fourth one and then they cancelled them or moved on or whatever so there there again we've got an unfinished <laughs> nigel fair story arc which seems to be a a running theme with big finish. You could probably still uh, do those. So how did you meet Louise? Is, is, did you meet Louise through the Companion Chronicles or did, did you know her earlier? Yeah. Uh, well, no, through the Tomorrow People. The Tomorrow People. Um, yeah, I'd uh, always admired her work um, in theatre and obviously on telly as well. Um and I was desperate to work with her. And then when I found out that Big Finish had worked with her as Leela, I, I think, um, I wrote, immediately wrote a part for her and the Tomorrow People, called the part Lou and bullied again. I did a lot of bullying of Jason Hay Guillory into casting her. <laughs> and she played one of the regulars, Elena's mum, and was magnificent. And it was a real thrill to meet her. Uh, and to act with her, the first time I met her, um, the, the guy playing her husband, Robert, someone, um, couldn't make that studio day. So uh, I ended up playing her husband in the, in the studio. So that was, I was acting with her as well as, you know, hearing her bring life to this character. So that was a real thrill. And we just completely hit it off, right, almost from day one, really. Um, and then, and now we sort of, you know, besties. Louise says that no one writes for Leela better than you do in terms of capturing the voice and her rhythms. Um, do you know she says this? Does she? <laughs> yeah. She never said that to me. 
Oh, how so, nice. uh, so yeah, when we were when we were speaking to her on the pod, on the pod, she talks about it. Yeah, you're, you're her favorite writer because you capture Leela's voice oh, and her rhythms better than anyone else. I was going to ask, how do you do that? Do you know that you do it? <laughs> I think I th- I always write. I tell you, as a writer, I always write with actors in mind, whether they play the part or not. So, and I think that's quite important to have a voice in your mind when you're writing. Um, so that you, the, each character's dialogue is different. Just as, you know, we all speak differently, um, different speeds and different tones and, and, and different emphasis and all, all this sort of business. Um, so, yeah, I always have the actors in voices in my head. So I think it's, um, with Leela, it was just, it was just obvious uh, because she, she made so much more of that character than was, than was actually there. I mean, it was, it was a clever, defined character, but she really filled in, as she does for every time she acts. Mm. She completely fills in every single detail. She's very precise with her um, performance uh, in every role she does. Um, there's always truth there. Um, so, yeah, I, I had her voice, but I'm, I'm thrilled that she says that, that about it. I didn't know that. I'm going to wind her up about that later. <laughs> <laughs> now, also, I mean, Louise has kind of followed you now in terms of writing, um, and she's she's you know becoming a very strong writer in her own right when she gets time to do it because she's just so busy, um, still doing all sorts of acting jobs, of course. But she's still got a passion for writing, which she's been developing. Now, her first major work with Big Fish, she co-wrote with you. I think she started yeah. off, and then I think you two started working together. Um, and also you've been working together on some other projects in terms of directing. Um, yeah, how do you two work together? How do we work together? <laughs> um, it's always difficult working with your friends, isn't it? Because you have to leave your friendship at the, at the door almost um, and, and, and then just reconnect as friends during the coffee break or whatever. Um, so I think we just, we, I think we have a very similar attitude to the work when it gets to being in a rehearsal room or in a studio, we're both almost obsessed with making it true. Um, and that that sort of rises above everything else. You know, is this, is this a true person you're watching on stage? So whether I'm directing her or she's directing me or we're working as actors together, it, it's, it's great when you've got two performers who, who have the same sort of approach. Um, but that's it. I don't really know how do you work together <laughs> as often as possible. <laughs> <laughs> but is, is it hard writing with somebody else? I mean, most of your writing you've done by yourself. So yeah. how hard is it to write with someone else? That was quite, that was, that was an interesting process. We planned, we went away to a spa resort in the middle of a forest to plan the... Um, the story arc of the of the P of the it was Doctor Who, wasn't it? Yes. It was. Um to 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 plan that. And then we divided that into um strands that we would each write. Um so that was that was quite easy and that we we'd we'd really sorted it everything out beforehand. But when we've written other stuff it's been less easy because we've been less organised, I guess. And even if we have been organised, she'll say, oh, I got a bit carried away with this. I got into scene 
17 and whereas I, I was I know I was supposed to stop at scene 14 and I said, well I've written scene 15 now and you know we, we get into quite a, quite a mess sometimes but um but out of that mess comes a huge amount of creativity and there's always you know it's, it's always interesting um yeah I, I don't know about writing with other people uh, it's for me writing has always been quite a solitary uh, a solitary thing um that I'll slog away and away and away and away at um, until it sort of forms itself. And when you're doing with that with another person, no matter how in tune you are, you're also waiting for them to have that same journey as well. So it can, it, when, it, when it's working, it's great. But when it isn't, you're kind of juggling, I think. Yeah. So you've done a lot of composition as well, and music, music, music scores and things. So where's your music background come from? Um, well, I did the recorder at school. <laughs> <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. I'm not really. I'm not a musician, but um, needs must. You know, when when um, when uh, we were in the theatre company, I was the only one who could sort of um this is the first theater company i was the only one who could sort of think in music so i had to do the music for the plays um and then when i kind of took on the sound design uh side of uh, big finish um they needed to have music scores going on in the background so i sort of got the synthesizer out and sort of started doing stuff it's all been a bit haphazard and then i sort of Develop that a little bit into sort of wanting each character have to have a theme and all that and, and everything. Uh, and you just build. I I I, can't, I couldn't sit down and play the piano, but I could sit down and know uh, a cello part in my head, and you know gradually put that down uh, in into the soundtrack, and then add a flute, and then add a string, and then you know I can do that in my head. I've got the orchestra sort of in my head, but. Um, I, c I couldn't sit down and do a, a, a little um, demonstration for anything. <laughs> so do you, do you read music? No. And you've never studied no. music? No. Wow. I, I was a huge fan of film scores from really early on. John Williams. I Before I went to see The Empire Strikes Back, I knew every note of that score. Me too. Because I'd had the, the LPs. <laughs> yep. I, uh, I mean, it's just, I think, I still to this day think it's one of his best scores. Yeah. Um, Schindler's List, Close Encounters being runners-up, I think. But, um, yeah, oh, that score, it's beautiful. Yoda's theme, oh, God. It's just beautiful. Yep. Um, I had, I had yeah. Yeah, so I had... And a latest theme too, yeah. There's so oh, much, yeah, yeah. There's so much in that score, yeah. Yeah. Oh wow. And so you just you've just taught yourself to compose and lay down music. Yeah. Wow. So you, you've got an album out. So you, you've got an album of music. Yes. No. Oh my god. <laughs> this is one of those thrilling moments I've ever had at Big Finish, and I couldn't believe it was happening. I did this series <laughs> called Dark Shadows, and again you know it needed music so I kind of fussed around and, and did it and then the producer said we'd like to bring out an album of your music and I was like, like you've got to be joking but there it was and it was a thing um, <laughs> and I had to write sleeve notes as well I mean it was like I was John Williams or someone 
It was lovely. Honestly, that was so thrilling. Um, yeah, and it probably sold about three copies, but I don't care. It, it exists. It's a thing. You put a copy of it. Yeah, somewhere. <laughs> and and it's, oh. on the big, it's on the website. It can be ordered. I, I saw it. Really? I, I, must have, I must admit, I don't own it, but you can still order it. I wouldn't bother. <laughs> but that oh, I was so thrilling. Honestly, that was, yeah. I'm glad you've reminded me of that. I'll be in a good mood now. Oh, good. <laughs> now, I've also been listening to um, a podcast series you brought out recently called Myra Moments. Um, which people more moments? Oh yeah, more, it's my more moments. Which is it? Uh, it's a series of stories about people's lives and a family set over different time zones, though um, linked together originally by different events in the royal family. Just so you have an idea of what year we're in. Um, just, yeah, why? Why is that your passion project? Uh, it's just it came about because of lockdown. Um, and we, uh, the f- second lockdown, I think it was, and we were all, and I'd already done some podcast dramas where everyone recorded their lines at home and I edited them together. Um, but they were very light and frothy and murder mystery sort of things. Um, but, uh, I wanted to do something serious. There's a series called This Is Us. Do you know it? It's an mm, American yes. series and it has a similar sort of format um, so I kind of wanted to do my own version of that and the original idea was to follow one character through her life and um, but in different times so you'd have her as a teenage girl then you'd have her as um, uh, a young adult then you'd have her as an old woman that was the original idea but then it kind of branched out into her whole family and then into lovers and then into friends and and all this sort of stuff so it got quite complicated um but uh I, i'm i'm just um the second season has just started coming out and um i'm editing it at the moment um i've got the most amazing actors in it honestly they're so brilliant makes me cry they're still everyone's do, does their lines in isolation so i get them through and i'm still sort of piecing them together like a jigsaw um but they're 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 wonderful um so that's ticked the box of sort of working with people even though we're all in isolation um but the story uh, has i've gone into it far deeper than i suspected i would in that um Without giving the plot away, there's there's one character who threw the well. I am giving the plot away. <laughs> for the first season, you think you're hearing one of the characters uh, who has you know a bit of a rocky marriage and everything um, um, gets together with the with his childhood sweetheart and everything, and then at the end of the first season, you find out that he's been gay the whole time. Um, but not able to be open about it because he grew up in Thatcher's Britain with uh, Section 28 and AIDS and gay conversion therapy and all that sort of business. Uh, So the second season starts and you start going over the same events, but finding out what was going on, why the marriage broke down, what what was affecting his psyche throughout. Um, But... And, and, and that was sort of the main thrust of it. But then around that, 
I, I started finding characters that were so complex and so sort of messed up by what was going on in in society, particularly in the 80s, uh, English society, uh, that it, it just got more and more interesting and more and more colourful. So now it's really complicated, um, but I, it's really strong stuff, I think. I'm really proud of it. I found the first season so engaging. That oh, bless you. I had, you, ha- you have to work hard a bit in terms of where we now, what, which character are we, hang on, where we move to, because it's not linear. Um, but in terms of if, if you've got uh, audience members prepared to put a bit of work in, there's some great twists and shocks and some of the endings and some of your episodes were sort of, you know, great little cliffhangers. And yeah, yeah it, it left me smiling um, oh, constantly because things were happening. So yeah, anyone who's not listened to it, I'm a highly recommend it. It's, it's a really professionally produced um, the acting, as you say, is superb. I didn't know all the actors, but yeah, you know, I, I know a few of them. And but even the other characters, I didn't know. Just yeah, the way they're portraying the character, as you said, it kept taking turns I wasn't expecting. As I think, obviously, as you discovered, a love for certain characters, um, a character who was very minor suddenly becomes this huge blown up character with this major storyline. And yeah, it was it's classic. It's great audio drama. Oh, bless you. We've uh, t- do- talking Doctor Who. Um, Matthew Waterhouse, who was Adric, um, he plays a part in it. And the one I've just edited, um, he loses his cat. Uh, um, and uh, I wrote it the day after I had to have my put- cat put down. Oh, no. Um, so, as you can imagine, it's quite a sort of emotional monologue. And he does it beautifully. It's just, we were all sort of, oh, because the thing was, we had Zoom read-throughs of all the episodes as, as a cast, which was just glorious. Um, and that was a weekly pleasure. You know, when um, when I'd written an episode, we would all Zoom uh, like this and uh, and read them. And, yeah, we were all sort of like that wall. Um, when he was delivering that. So, yeah, that's one highlight. Would it be absurd to say that I grieved longer and deeper for my dear Maggie than I did for Mother? I'm guessing it wouldn't, really. We British invest so much love in our pets, don't we? In many ways, it's the way we allow ourselves to express all those emotions we're so adept at hiding beneath our tight polite smiles. It's perfectly acceptable to fawn over one's dog, whereas an open display of affection for one's child would be regarded as either mildly embarrassing or worse, damaging. That child is so spoilt, they're going to have real problems with it when it grows up. She looks nice. Who? My mother or the cat? (laughs) Both. Yes, well, looks can be deceiving. I know. Is uh, Rita up yet? Oh, yes, my sister is up and about at the crack of dawn. I'm sure she must have been a cockerel in former life. Now then, shall we see who's died? No. Still doing that, then. Of course. What else is there to do in wretched Eastbourne? Apart from wait for your own name to grace the obituary column. Do help yourself to an egg, if you would like. Or some cornflakes, if you've got any. Thanks. Aha! Perfect. 
Mother would never have dreamed of telling me she loved me. Father even less so. Which was probably why their departures from my life were marked with a couple of verses of Abide With Me, dull but accurate lists of jobs, charities and hobbies masquerading as eulogies, and some limp sandwiches back at the house. All done and dusted, with barely a damp eye from yours truly, whereas after we had put Maggie to sleep, I howled like a baby. Put her to sleep. Very British. We killed her, the vet and I, after months of the poor thing wailing at me every couple of hours, bouts of refusing to eat anything but freshly microwaved chicken, and a coat that had become a rugged landscape of matted hair, and suddenly appeared one Sunday with an eye that looked positively satanic. I knew then that I could no longer avoid the signs, and bundled her into her basket to be prodded, poked, and analysed by the vet. The prognosis was not promising. Her blood pressure was sky-high, her heart racing, and the bloody red eye was literally that, blood. Furthermore, the peculiar yawning movement of her jaw, which I'd taken as an affectation, was caused by a tumour I'd not even noticed. So determined was I that she would break all feline records and outlive me. Because to consider her mortality was unthinkable, a life without her unlivable. Yet I was the one who inevitably had to make the awful decision to let her go, to stop her suffering, to kill her. And, we, and this second season has got the gorgeous Angela Bruce in um, uh, oh. as Gran, and she's an adorable character. And the more we got into her, we used because um, until recently I lived in Brighton, and so did she. And we used to go walking and things in the Downs, um, and we would discuss this character, and it got and it got just more and more bizarre but lovable. So yeah, that's something to look forward to in season two as well. Most most Doctor Who fans remember her as Brigadier Bambera, but. Should have always, said that, right? uh, to me, she'll always be the female lister. Ah, in Red Dwarf, yeah. <laughs> Actually, you mentioned Matthew Waterhouse there. I'm going to yeah. sort of jump out of our uh, chronology a little bit here, but I've just in the last week, I think it was last week, I finished listening to Watchers, uh, oh, which Watchers, is yeah. uh, uh, and one of the, it's the second release in Big Finish's audio novels range. Uh, written and read by Matthew Waterhouse, and it was directed by you, wasn't it? Directed, produced, yeah, and I yeah. did the and music. <laughs> yes, did the yeah. work, sound design. I really enjoy this long form oh, storytelling. Storytelling more and more. Uh, I, I love the effort that goes into. It's not just a straight reading. So, uh, and I think I was very impressed with Matthew's uh, Fourth Doctor. It was fantastic. How was how was that for? How how different is that to produce something like this? with one person, but very long, but you do have to put a lot of thought, I guess, as a director as to where you're going to put things uh, and tweak things. How does that compare to doing, say, a, a regular length audio drama? Well, as you say, it's a long time. <laughs> it's a, it's a, I think it's sort of eight hours or something. It's a really long 
um, listen, and 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 it takes a lot of hard work to put together. Um, but it was just a joy because Matthew is, you know, I champion him as a fantastic actor. I've written for him on stage as well as um, work with him with Big Finish. Um, he's he's he's. I mean, I know he comes from under a lot of flack for. Adric, but then he was a teenager. He he was developing then. And I think even if you watch those old the stories, you can see actually a really good performance struggling to come through there. Uh, and then he has moments of brilliance as Adric, I have to say. But now he's extraordinarily good. Um, and as a person, he's just so lovely. He's 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 incredibly well read. Um and um yeah, cultured and just a brilliant person to go drinking with. Um, but all this comes across in his writing, which is uh, inspired by Henry James and, and and all sorts of literary things come in. Literary things come into it, um, and he performs them brilliantly as well. The, the, there's a race of aliens in there, and. He was doing this voice of the aliens and all sort of doing it like this and everything and everything. And I, I thought, I bet that's the voice you did as a kid when you wanted to be a Doctor Who monster. <laughs> and then he really surprised me by having several people in that alien race and they all had different voices. Even though they were all had that sort of alien, there would be another one who came in like this, and, and another one that had that. And he was doing all these things everywhere. It's brilliant. He's so good. He's so good. From Big Finish Productions, Exterminate Doctor Who, the audio novels, Watchers. This Dalek ship was smaller than most. Some kind of experimental ship. Were these Daleks researchers, like the Trolka? Probably. It was wise during dangerous early trials to put as few as possible into harm's way, even for the Daleks. The Daleks had long been obsessed with the conquest of time. They tried often. Maybe there were other Daleks here in the hulk of lost ships, earlier or later failures. Tharvet stood in silence, fuming, and yet feeling for these eerie, gliding killers a sort of admiration. They certainly knew something about discipline. The universe could use more of this kind of discipline, leaders strong and unforgiving, the lead learning respect. Under other circumstances, he could imagine working with them. He looked at the space where his gun arm had once been. They were the enemy, and he would show them no quarter. And if, when... He got the chance to destroy them. In their final moments, they would bitterly admire him, as he bitterly admired them now. They went some way round the circular corridor into the main control room. It was ovular and dotted with machinery. The six white Daleks encircled the three prisoners. The gold Dalek spoke. You are the one called the Doctor. Your faces are recorded in the memory of the Daleks. We do not forget. You have tried to interfere with our plans before. You have always failed. Not always. 
said the doctor with a toothy grin. Our creator, Davros, knew of you. You tried to exterminate the Daleks. You failed. As always, you failed. We emerged stronger than ever. Now you will assist us. Must I? We will punish these creatures if you do not do as we instruct. Why not let them go? Why destroy them? Not destroy. Punish. They will suffer. You are sentimental. You will work with us to stop their suffering. Will I? Escort them to the time engine. We obey! Two of the white Daleks pushed the Doctor and the Trulka back into the corridor, on the other side of which were several more doors. Behind them came the gold Dalek. The nearest door phosphoresced open, and they all went through, into a small room thick with technology. In the centre stood a structure of some glassy substance, completely surrounded by an ovular control panel. The design had an echo of a TARDIS. Had they at some time used one as a model? Had they pulled it apart to find its secrets? Had the Time Lords unwittingly showed the Daleks the way into the Vortex? We have entered the Time Stream successfully, but we have been unable to escape it. Our machinery is perfect. There is no error in the design. You must adjust the engine so that we can leave the Vortex. I'm not an expert on these things. Think of me as a taxi driver. I can make a car nip around corners, but don't ask me to build one. You lie. You are a Time Lord of Gallifrey. Not a very important one. You lie. You know this technology. You understand it. The gold Dalek swiveled. Take these others to the holding cell. I obey. Big finish. We love stories. The, the thing that got me about that story is that right at the beginning, um, he describes a scene from the Dalek invasion of Earth in Paris. And I thought that was so beautiful. That hooked me for the rest of the story. It's not related to the rest of the story in any way at all. But he delivered that so beautifully. Um, I was I would just thought, this is, this is fantastic. And he's always impressed. Ever since he's come to Big Finish, um, mm. in anything he does, he's really impressed me. And yeah, I agree. He gets a lot of flack for the character Adric from all those years ago. But yeah, you've got to look beyond that because he is really a big talent. It's huge, huge. Um, and uh, <laughs> there's more to come. <laughs> awesome. Uh, also, yeah, the thing that I loved about Watchers, one of the many things I loved about Watchers was the emotional journey of the two um, guest uh, leads. Um, you get this um, sort of time lady, I don't want to give everything away, and uh, the French guy that she picks up in the Dalek invasion of Paris. Um, and their story is is just wonderful. I think they should have their own spin-off series because I think the, the characters are so strong and interesting and the journey they go on. And then there's a lovely scene where trying to think of it without giving a spoiler, but there's a lovely scene where Adric talks to uh, the boy about 
the fact that you can't go back once someone's dead, you can't go back and rescue them uh, and everything. But it's it's written beautifully. And of course, you know, if you know Adric's story, you know that in a few stories time, that's going to be him. And they're not going to be able to go back and rescue him. It's It's littered with moments, brilliantly written moments like that. And the whole concept, uh, the way it ends, is is just so clever. Absolutely, absolutely, it's a must listen uh, in my in yeah. my view. Um, oh, good. Speaking of audio novels, as we speak, I believe your Babin novel has been released. Uh, it's being released. Oh God, has it today? Is that right, Philip? Yes, today. I'm, 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 today. We, we only get the emails from Big Finish about a day before, so it must be now. It must be yeah. right now. It, it, so, it, it, it could still be under um, whatever the word is, but uh, by the time this comes out, it'll be out. I <laughs> know. Oh, it's it's already out by now. It's usually about oh. half past seven our time that, yeah. that they drop. Um, so what was that like for you doing, doing a, a long book, obviously not full novel length, but Still, quite a quite a work that you would have spent quite a lot of time on. What's it called? Is it Baben Baben Rising? Baben the Butcher. Sorry, Baben the Butcher. Baben Ascending. Baben Ascending. I was close. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. It, it was. It, that was a. That was a. That was hard work. I have to say. Eventually, I had to limit myself to I think a thousand words a day, or maybe five hundred, or something like that, because it was just sort of. It was like a mountain. And I thought, oh, well, I'm not sure I'm going to be able to do this. Um, the whole thing is based on Macbeth. Um, it's the story of Macbeth, really. But um, <laughs> I can't give anywhere any spoilers. But, um, the, yeah, but, but plonk Baben uh, into Macbeth, and there you've got it. Um, <laughs> I did quite a re- lot of research into where the witches in Macbeth came from. You know, what what what's the legends behind the witches? Where would Shakespeare have got those characters? Which I was tremendously interested in. Um, and that's actually what led to Moira Moments, actually. Uh, that research um, into fate and the fates and... Uh, Clothos, Atropos, and the other one. Um, but then, then Chris Chibnall um, also used that same legend in the latest Doctor Who. So I thought, oh no, this must be in the zeitgeist. This, uh, the three witches, three spirits, three gods, whatever you like to call them, um, three fates. Um, so yeah, that's that's in it. Um, I did have, there was a momentary setback right at the end where I suddenly was told, having written God knows how many thousands of words, that a certain character couldn't die because they they were mentioned in another story, which had escaped the attention of the producers. (laughs) So my whole, I, 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 I dread to think what, um, it, it turned out like, <laughs> but I had to really re- rewrite the end right at the last minute, uh, which uh, didn't go down too well as a writer, I have to say. <laughs> oh no! Do you know who directed it? Because there's no director listed. I don't know. I'm presuming that Colin read it. Yes, yeah, yes, and narrated by Colin. Oh, but lovely. Yeah, oh, it couldn't be anyone else, could it? But it, it's interesting. No. I it's, mean, it's, I had his. I had once again. I had his voice in my head. Uh, when I was writing it. And I love working with Colin. 
I was so busy with watches that I didn't really sort of have much time, well, any time to sort of follow the, once I'd written it, to follow the production of it or anything. I was distracted by watches. So, uh, yeah, I'd be, uh, I, hope I, I hope they send me a copy. <laughs> so you're still bouncing in and out of acting. You're going in and out of directing. I know you and Louise had to disappear to do some, she got some good job and you had to step in and do some of her um, Blake 7. Um, yes, Blake yes, that's right. Yes. Yes, that was remotely. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, what, what are your what, what are your hopes for next? What are you hoping to do? What, what's to come? I've got a busy time coming up. Um, although I thought I was moving to Cornwall to just sit on a rock and watch the sea and the seals and everything. Um, this Friday, I'm up in London at Big Finish working on a project, <laughs> uh, which is very close to my heart. And um, yeah, we've got a studio day on Friday, which is the start of that. Um, I can't tell you what it is, but it's very That's exciting. Okay. And uh, yes, and then um, I'm off on tour in a play that Louise directed called Revenge, which we were touring just before the first lockdown. Um, so this is the sort of latter half of the tour, but a bit later. Yeah, um, I play a corrupt. Yeah. Uh, a corrupt Tory MP, uh, of course, uh, which is well, a the, fantastic the, is, is it part. any such thing as a corrupt Tory MP? I find that very hard <laughs> to believe. <laughs> I think, is there anything as a, there any such thing as a non-corrupt Tory MP? <laughs> but that is a brilliant part. Uh, I, I'm really looking forward to touring that. Um, and then I've got a film in uh, Cologne, that we're filming in Cologne, and I play um, a father who's... Uh, I, it, it, I've, I've brought back the spirit of Nick Courtney. Um, I think I would lie down in this scene. Um, I spend a lot of... Uh, well, all of my scenes, apart from one, in bed, in a hospital bed in Cologne, with my son coming, my estranged son coming and trying to reconnect with me as I'm dying. It sounds very glum, but actually there are light bits to it. And the son play, the actor playing my son is magnificent. He's a fantastic actor called Yanis. So I'm really looking forward to that. Um, and then I hope to be sitting on a a, a rock and rock looking at the, the sea and the seals. <laughs> yeah, I don't, think, I don't think that's going to be happening for a while yet. I think you've got too much <laughs> coming up still. Oh, yeah, and yeah, and there's another. Um, I think I've also already intimated that there may be more work with Mr. Waterhouse um, to come. And I've got another project with Big Finish as well. So, yeah, it just keeps coming and coming, which is lovely. Lucky me. From Big Finish Productions, Baben Ascending. We lived on level B of the dome. A modest pod, plain and serviceable, always clean. I saw to that. Often Mother would return from her shift and want to do little more than eat, watch the info vidcast, and sleep. I didn't mind. Hey, you're a good boy, babe, she'd occasionally say. She often called me babe. Your father wouldn't exactly be proud of you, but he'd be grateful to you for looking after your old mum. Once in a while I'd wonder who exactly my father had been. He died when I was only a few months old. Mother never told me his name, just that he'd been a fine warrior, 
and that he died a decent death serving the Federation. I assumed he was an officer, but my work colleague Tolvan hinted otherwise. If your father had been officer class or even trooper, it would show up on your record, he said. Van was a small, wiry man with institution spectacles and not much hair, the kind you'd pass by in a corridor without noticing. We'd both been assigned to information input that week. Much to his disgust, Van considered himself very much above input of any kind, and with some justification. He'd received a special commendation in computer science— at the academy, and was used to something a little more challenging. I had no opinion either way. At the end of the day, work was work, wherever they put me. How do you know it's not on my record? I asked him. Because I've seen it, he replied nonchalantly, punching his keyboard without even taking his eye off the screen. How? You allowed? Van looked across at me and winked. Some of us don't worry about permission to access information, he grinned, tapped his nose, and returned his attention to the keyboard. Well, that was a fantastic chat we had with Nigel Fares, Philip. It was a lot of fun. I think Nigel had a bit of fun too. I hope so. I hope so. And, um, yeah, by the sound of it, there's uh, still a lot more to come from the pen, the... The, and and the acting chops of Nigel Fares. And directing, too. Yes, and producing. Yep. Jack, he's jack of all trades. He really is astounding what he can do. Yeah, yeah. If he weren't so nice, you'd hate him. Absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> now, we'll go on to our recommendations for this week because uh, I have already mentioned what I'm going to recommend, but I just want to talk about it a little bit more. So I might just... Oh, hang on. Let me just check my list. Whose turn is it? It's actually your turn, Philip. Believe it or not. I find that really hard to believe, but okay, I will go first. Um, No one is going to be surprised to know I'm going to recommend... Hang on. A com- Companion Chronicles? <laughs> yes, there you go. But having just had Nigel Fares on, actually, to be perfectly honest, I'd love to recommend The Tomorrow People because I have really enjoyed... That, that is a brilliant series. Helen Gold was amazing. The visual cast come back. Um, I was going to ask Nigel next time we have him on we might talk about um, what he did to Stephen because I wasn't very happy about that. But aside from that, <laughs> um, The Tomorrow People was an amazing series, but you can't get it. Um, so let me recommend um, a companion. Something you can get. It's something you can get, and not too expensive at the moment, uh, called The Time Vampire. So it's a companion chronicle. It stars Leela. It's both written and directed by Nigel. Um, and it has just Louise and John Leeson in it. So they're the only two cast members. Uh, Time Vampire is the third in a trilogy by Nigel Fares. Um, it started with The Catalyst, then Empathy Games, and this is the third one. And it's actually Leela on her deathbed telling stories. And so it's an old Leela telling stories about what happened in her youth. And the story seems to have taken place just before Invasion of Time. Um, and it's a story about K9 going, well, the Doctor thinks K9 has turned bad and evil. And what, what, do, we, what do we do with an evil K9? Um, it's a lot of fun. Um, really wonderfully told by John Leeson and Louise Jameson do an amazing job. Um, really, really worth listening to. So, couldn't recommend it better. 
Lovely Nigel Faye story. Coming soon from Big Finish Productions. Doctor Who, The Companion Chronicles, The Time Vampire. I am haunted by dreams. <coughs> Half-forgotten memories. Enjoying it? You said I had to keep it going up and down. I thought it was part of the magic. Faces and worlds that I do not recognize. I remember. I remember now. I watched a time vampire destroy my family. Monster. <coughs> Canine is not just a machine. He talks to me. He understands what I say. Set my warriors. I have defensive capabilities. You will be given no further warning. Canine! No! Canine, you killed her. Affirmative. I have waited so long for this day. Oh. Please let me die at last. Now, Dwayne, what about you? What are you going to recommend again for us? I'm going to reiterate um, the audio novels release written by Matthew Waterhouse, read by Matthew Waterhouse, Watches. And it's interesting that the story wasn't originally going to feature the Daleks, but it ended up featuring the Daleks very, very heavily uh, throughout the story. And being called Watches... And if you're a Doctor Who fan, like I'm sure we all are Doctor Who fans, uh, being set with the fourth Doctor and Adric before the events of Logopolis, you're going to be thinking, well, how does the term watches or how do the people watches fit into this story? And as I, it, it went in a direction that I did not expect, uh, a satisfying direction, but it was totally unexpected. I was waiting for these uh, white-clad ghost-like figures to appear throughout the story, but what I got instead was something uh, totally unique, and that's what I like. I like being surprised. And the way Matthew writes and reads, and I said before, he does a great fourth Doctor. He does a great everything, really, in, in the story, um, particularly his descriptive writing, and it made me think, well, I've, I've not read Matthew Waterhouse's novels because he is a novelist, uh, he's mm. a professional novelist, but I reckon if I did get into his novels, I'd really enjoy them because uh, his descriptions uh, within Watches are beautiful. And it's wonderful to listen to. So that's my recommendation. Doctor Who Watches by Matthew well, Waterhouse. I will listen to that. I've been meaning to put it on for a while. I was just finding the time to do it, but I'll make it a priority. Got to do it, Philip. I All will right. do That'll do us for this instalment of The Sirens of Audio. It's been great to talk to you, Philip. It's been great to talk to Nigel Fares. And we'll catch you all next time. See you all. This has been The Sirens of Audio, episode 103. In conversation with an audio drama maker with our guest Nigel Fares and your hosts, Philip Edney and Dwayne Bunny. Theme music by the Jackpot Golden Boys. Contact details. Links to our podcast and video locations, social media and more can be found at sirensofaudio.com. Send us some audio feedback via anchor.fm slash sirensofaudio. Drop us a line at sirensofaudio at gmail.com. Or drop us a comment if you're watching on YouTube to give us your thoughts about a podcast or the latest audio drama you've been listening to, and we'll share it on a future episode. And why in the name of the great prophet Zarkwan should you do this? Because audio drama...